Well, good morning, church. It's uh, good to join with you virtually. I have to be honest with you. Uh, a few months ago, when we began our live gatherings and resumed this, I thought my days of preaching simply to a camera were, were done and over. Uh, and I pray that uh, they are few and far between still. However, uh, with our live drive through nativity this weekend, uh, we're not going to have a Saturday night service, which is what we normally record and broadcast to you on Sunday morning. And so while we could try to live stream our Sunday morning gathering, uh, so I would avoid doing this, uh, I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. And we have run into some different technology problems in the past and don't want to risk that uh, for you and have you sitting at home doing nothing this Sunday morning. And so I have the opportunity Saturday morning as I record this, but to spend some time with you. Uh, on top of that, the bonus is that uh, this massive live Christmas tree that we have here in the back of our auditorium, you get to at least catch a glimpse of on camera if you haven't been here in the month of December as we uh, work and preach through God's Word together. And so uh, I'm excited to do that with you and excited to spend some time with you, even though I'm just looking into a lens right now. But, but in my mind, I'm imagining you uh, sitting in your living room somewhere, listening to this, hearing the, God, the Word of God and praising Him together as we rejoice and worship through His Word. And so I ask you to pray with me. Join me in prayer, and then I uh, want to give you a few logistical updates, and then we're going to take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. All right, so join me in prayer first. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that uh, you give us your word, that, that we are a people that through difficult times, through difficult circumstances, we can depend, we can rest, we can rely upon you. And I pray that you would help us be a people who can greatly rejoice in these times of distress that we live in in all of our lives, various circumstances and pain and trial, and as you promise us consistently in our word, suffering. And, and as we discuss that and walk through that this morning, I pray that uh, you would help us rejoice in suffering wherever it might be in our lives, whether we're in it, going toward it, coming out of it, that uh, we would see those things as opportunities to glorify your name and that we would respond in a way that is praiseworthy of your praise, your glory going forth. Help us with it, Lord. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, a uh, couple things before we jump into 1 Peter chapter 3 and chapter 4 this morning. Um, by now, uh, as you hear this, we have worked through our first night of the drive through nativity. I'm going to entrust that it's gone really well. Uh, as of Saturday morning, we're set up and ready to go and uh, really excited about what the Lord's going to do in that. If you didn't come the first night, make sure sometime between 6 and 8 tonight, you make a plan to come out and be a part of it. Uh, it's supposed to be beautiful Sunday night. It's the potential of some flurries, which would be to just kind of add to the ambiance of the whole thing. Uh, and praise the Lord, I, we have a lot of people set up to serve. A lot of people that are going to come and drive through, get some hot chocolate and some cookies, and uh, just get to hear the Christmas story. And so uh, I want to invite you again and have you be a part of that, and uh, praise God that we get to do such a thing. Uh, the second thing I want to mention is this coming Thursday, Christmas Eve, we have gatherings at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. here at the church. Uh, we would love for you to come and be a part of one of those. Uh, if you're not going to make it in person, uh, at 6, we're going to broadcast uh, those gatherings on uh, our 
Facebook Live account, and hopefully just after that onto our YouTube page, and so you'll be able to catch uh, what is really the recording of our 4 o'clock gathering uh, live at just after 6, probably about 6.15, it will begin the live stream, uh, the way that all of our technology works. That's when it will fit together, and so uh, you can absolutely be a part of that, uh, and we look forward to having you uh, in that as well. Uh, but again, uh, invited to come be a part of either 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. here as we do Christmas Eve. It'll be a shorter gathering, and we'll uh, have some time to, to do that together, and uh, praise the Lord that we can. Uh, then I want to mention another thing. Uh, after that, we, we have one more Sunday before we finish the year where we're going to continue in and close out First Peter. You won't want to miss that as we work through that text. And then we're going to begin in January a new series in the Gospel of John, uh, working through the whole first half of 2021, working through John's Gospel, uh, as well as laying out some uh, just structural behind-the-scenes things that we can do to try to equip you and help you uh, study and explore the Bible together as a family. And so we've got some resources that we're going to uh, offer out to the church to help with uh, elementary kids, teenage kids, and families together reading the Bible. If you don't have kids in the home, uh, that you would read the Bible, work through a plan together where you can uh, travel through different texts. And uh, each, each day, each week that we have some different things we're working through together as a church uh, and going through kind of holding one another accountable and encouraging one another in that, knowing that for many of us, the desire to lead through the Word of God and lead spiritually for our family is there. Uh, and in practice, you just kind of struggle with how do we do it or the the tools of discipline to help us do it. And so uh, we wanted to kind of come alongside you in that. And so that's my kind of encouragement, recommendation, and promise to you that early in January, especially, you want to be connected, whether it's virtually or in person. Uh, you want to be a part of uh, what we're doing here as a church so that you can kind of get on board with the things that we're going to focus on for the whole first half of 2021. And that's if you miss a couple weeks, still come, right? But, but in that, uh, I think those are going to be really the next three, four weeks, really important weeks for you to be a part of. Now, in order to get there, uh, we're going to cover some larger chunks of Scripture this week and next week to close out the letter of 1 Peter to the church. Now, the reason I think that's okay, uh, though we're going to kind of move quickly through some pretty uh, intense theological and doctrinal texts this week and next week, uh, is because thematically, 1 Peter has really kind of followed the same system and the same process, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as we've walked through it, uh, which is really this. The, the thesis that Peter has laid forth is that we, believers, would be a people who can greatly rejoice, not just uh, survive, but to endure with rejoicing times of trial and times of distress because of who Christ is. And so uh, the repeated kind of format of the letter is going to be to remind us to be a people who would rejoice in those times. That word's going to come again and again and again. And then remind us why we could be a people who rejoice in those times. And then kind of encourage or coach us on how we would be a people who rejoice in difficult circumstances, in times of trial. Uh, and, and then it's just going to repeat that over and over again. And so uh, as we work through the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 this week, we're going to see all of those things uh, kind of played back again as Peter 
continues to zoom in on, continues to clarify that we ought to be a people rejoicing in the Lord in times of trial. In fact, this week, the kind of zoom in is going to be not just to define trials as everything difficult or bad that happens to us, but to build out this specific word, suffering, and then he's going to connect that suffering to when we do righteous and godly things. So suffering on behalf of what is good and godly. Let's, let's look at it together. First Peter chapter 3, pick up with me in verse 13, and I'll show you what I mean. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which, they are, in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, I think the question we then ask is Peter making this distinction that you and I might suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong is that he's indicating no matter if we do right or wrong, we are likely in this life at some point or another to suffer for it, to receive pain out of our actions, albeit if they're poor actions or good actions, if they're ungodly actions or godly actions, that suffering might still be the result one way or another. In fact, uh, the problem that we kind of think through is both uh, first century Jews and Gentiles early in Christian walk and 21st century us today in kind of pandemic world that we see difficult, dramatic, and painful responses circumstantially in this world affect and influence both godly and ungodly people alike. And so what he's noting uh, is that as you do what is good and righteous, you might still suffer for it. You might still be opposed because of it. And in that opposition, it doesn't necessarily mean what you did was good or did was wrong, but rather that opposition could be from God. In fact, consistently in the Bible, we're commanded to be a people who would live righteous and in that righteous living, uh, not guaranteed or even encouraged at all that it might create a lack of opposition for us, but rather that in our righteous living, Peter's cases, that our opponents wouldn't have a case for you. And so righteous living doesn't preclude you from having opponents. In fact, maybe the best case point example of this is the fact that Jesus, our Savior, lived without sin, a perfectly righteous life for us, and yet it was still at the hands of sinful men that he was crucified for it, that he was opposed by it. And so our righteous living doesn't uh, give us away from suffering, but rather continues to change the nature of why we might suffer. Let, let me help you with what I mean by this. Um, I think to, to simplify things, you could break down 
what suffering is into two different uh, places or categories, right? There is godly suffering, and then there is uh, ungodly or, or disciplined suffering. And so uh, in that, we watch the consequences of our actions or the discipline of our actions or the judgment of our actions move out sometimes while we do what is right and godly and sometimes while we do what is wrong and ungodly. And so Peter's recognizing that we ultimately ought not be people who make all of our decisions based on the potential earthly consequences, but rather that we would be a people who make our decisions based on what is godly and righteous. Now, you see this, let me kind of help walk this out. Uh, You see this consistently through the Bible that God's opposition to men that pain in this world and difficult circumstances, what we might define as suffering, comes in many shapes and in many formats into many different groups of people for different reasons, right? So, so the way that in my head this works and I break it down is uh, we see suffering sometimes in the case of judgment of God toward and against a people who are sinful and unrepentant and persist in their ways of resisting him. Uh, the Bible calls those people often a stiff necked people that they would not turn that they are proud in their ways Uh, you think about it throughout history and uh, consistently this happens for nations and empires that God has raised up and brought down for the sake of his glory right we see it with God's people in Egypt as he has built up the Egyptians for a purpose and as the Pharaoh continues to have his heart hardened and hardened his own heart that he would resist the Lord and eventually it comes crashing down upon him. And so while we see the plagues as demonstrations of God's glory and the Egyptians would have seen them as an intense time of suffering, we don't find that suffering as righteous for them and out of their righteousness, but rather God's judgment being poured out upon them. Uh, The same thing happens with Babylon. The same thing has happened with Assyria. The same thing happens with Persia. Again and again and again, we see this evidenced in the people of God. Now, there's a second type of uh, suffering or pain in an earthly sense that occurs consistently throughout the scripture uh, that I would call the consequences of sinful living within God's people. Uh, And so it's not necessarily a recognition of God bringing down judgment so much as it is simply the natural result in the uh, godly systems that have been set up in this world and God's design for human flourishing and for human pain uh, that walk themselves out as God's people make poor choices, right? We, we looked over the course of this summer at a couple of these uh, as we walked through some minor prophets who spoke during the time of the exile of Israel and Judah. So we're talking 700 to 500 BC, and here's what has happened. God builds up a nation for his own possession, a people that would represent him and look distinct from other nations. He has given the people of Israel a land that he promised to them, a land that was rich. The Bible calls it flowing with milk and honey, that it was an abundant land where they could live well and they could bring glory and praise to the name of God. Now, what happens? Well, they get into this land. 
uh, the command, the covenant contract, the, the agreement that God makes with his people is, you serve me, you shall have no other gods before me. And when you do so, that this will be a time of flourishing for you. They get into the land, uh, you don't make agreements, accords, interrelationships with other people that inhabit this land, you drive them out. This is your land. It does not take long before they break this. In fact, by the end of their settling of the land, they've already let and agreed to covenant with foreign nations. Uh, shortly after that, just a few generations later, they want to have king like the other nations around them. And so it's not a rejection of uh, a certain type or format of governance. It's a desire to be like those who don't know God. And so uh, out of this, it just takes a few more generations before they seep into the cultural traditions and living in the painful and unrighteous ways of the world. And so out of this, there's civil war that comes, the nation splits into two, and following a consistent abandonment of God and a consistent degree of evil that ramps up again and again and again, and his people never really turn from it, it's just a matter of time before a foreign nation for the north in Israel, it's Assyria, comes in and exiles his people out of the land as, as get this, a consequence for their sinful behavior and breaking the covenant of God. Now, here's, here's what's so fascinating about this. God's people at the time feel the weight of pain and describe that as suffering during this time, that they've been, uh, there's been mass murder and exile and loss of land and property and rights and life, and, and so it's painful and it's suffering, and yet the suffering is a consequence of their unrighteous choices that have brought them to that place. And 100, 150 years later, this same thing happens to the nation of Judah, who uh, has maybe a little bit better track record, and yet continues in this same spotty Life And so it is not necessarily uh, a recognition of righteous suffering, but a consequence of sinful choices made for generation after generation after generation. However, the Bible also describes a third type of pain or suffering or trial in this world as Peter's explaining it, this suffering for doing what is good, a suffering for doing what is godly, a suffering for doing what is righteousness that is outside of judgment, it's outside of consequence, and it's outside of, get this, outside of discipline from the Lord, right? Because you and I, as believers, no longer need to fear the judgment of God. Though we might experience consequence for our sin, we will know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the consequence will never be God's judgment. The consequence will never be uh, the degree of consequence that it was for his people in Israel, but rather that we know that the consequence of our sin at times is the discipline of the Lord to bring us back to him. Hebrews chapter 12 says it this way, uh, you've forgotten the exhortation which is, which is addressed to you as sons or sons and daughters. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are repro reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become part, part, partakers of, then you are 
illegitimate children and not sons. And so sometimes the suffering that we might experience is designed in godly discipline, again, to bring us back for him uh, out of our disobedience to him, right? Um, this week, I have, I have three kids. I'm not going to tell you which one it was. Uh, one of our children had a day where they just they just made some very poor decisions, one after another, after another, after another, which eventually culminated in uh, a choice of attitude that as a parent just... Right, and, and so out of that, uh, here's, here's what happened. That said child lost the next day all rights to eat sugar and to watch anything on a screen. Now, that's fascinating because uh, the problem that that child had had nothing to do with what they ate, and it had nothing to do with what they were watching on TV. It was a reaction to uh, emptying the dishes, which, you know, I was looking to get out of emptying the dishes and ask the kid to do it, and the kid didn't want to do it, and the, I'm the parent. And so out of that, right, here's, here's the discipline of a parent was you can't react this way. And, and so out of this, we're going to take these things away so that you might learn and grow and walk in righteousness going forward and so so there's all these different ways that you see interacting throughout the world uh, suffering or pain uh, judgment consequence discipline because we're not walking in a path of righteousness and yet what Peter's talking about here in first Peter 3 is that you might also experience pain or suffering what that doesn't have anything to do with a consequence, and it doesn't have anything to do with discipline, and it doesn't have anything to do with judgment, but rather it is suffering at the hands of doing what is good and righteous, which I think leaves you, if you're like me, with the question, uh, why? Why would God allow believers who are doing what is within His will the ability to suffer? Why, why not prosper materially why not prosper on this earth why not prosper bodily all believers as they do what is righteous wouldn't that incentivize us to do righteous things more uh, it almost seems at first glance and at human interest unfair that we might do something that is good and yet God would allow us to suffer for it uh, in fact in verse 17 right he said for it is better if God should will it so that God wills it so at times that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what is wrong. And so uh, I, think, I think the question we've got to work through this morning is why does God allow believers to suffer? Not, not at the hands of judgment, consequence, discipline, but for doing righteous deeds. Why? Well, I, I see in this passage Peter give out uh, a couple reasons for this. Three, in fact, I'm going to kind of walk you through them. Here's the first. Suffering, when you are doing what is good, godly, or righteous, allows us to give an account for the hope that is in us. That's the first thing. Uh, that ultimately, uh, we said a few weeks ago in First Peter 2, that the reason you belong to the Lord is so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. 
Listen, that's, that's our purpose in life. If you know Jesus Christ, you have found, discovered the purpose of your existence. There's no deeper question to be answered than that, that you and I exist to proclaim the excellencies of God. That in all of our life, in everything we do, we are a people that magnify the Lord. That our soul is meant to proclaim His excellencies in all things. And so in this, go back to chapter 3, he picks up in verse 15 and he says, but sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord in your hearts, magnify Him, walk closer to Him, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and readiness. He says you, you be ready to give a defense. You be ready to proclaim the gospel. You be ready to speak about Christ. When? When you have to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, here's the thing. You don't often have to give an account for the hope that is in you when everything goes your way. In, in fact, when you greatly rejoice because everything works out exactly the way you planned and exactly the way you intended, it is no surprise to anyone that you are rejoicing, right? Uh, you, you win the lottery, and it is no surprise that you have joy or excitement in this. What is peculiar to the world, what, what doesn't make sense is when you are rejoicing greatly, when you have hope, when you give glory to God, when you walk with Christ as things eradicate and, and fall away around you, as, as you see the erosion of the circumstantial earthly good things that people seek so deeply and as those aren't in your life and as you experience pain at the hands of doing what is good and godly you continue to give glory to the Lord it is peculiar it's wildly countercultural, and it results in questions about why you might react that way in fact time and time again the most significant influential Christians throughout history are often people who have experienced great deals of pain, trial, suffering, and persecution at the hands of men while doing nothing wrong, and it bears significant influence to the glory of God. Uh, you think about names like Corey Tenboom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who are uh, in internment concentration camps in Germany during World War II, uh, experiencing all kinds of unjust pain and treatment on the hands of Nazi Germans, and, and yet they continue to be patient and kind and loving and caring for others, self-sacrificing and praising the Lord. And so their influence begins to go out in ways that praises his name and gives opportunity for the gospel to go forth. John Wycliffe, prior to the Reformation, Martin Luther, these early leaders in the Christian Reformation, experiencing not just the ability to talk about God, but pain, suffering at the hands of testifying to his name, and it increases their ability to testify. Uh, in fact, during this time, as Peter gives this writing, what you're finding is that Christians who are being persecuted, Christians who are being imprisoned, Christians who are being put to death, as they would declare joy, hope, and glory to God in those circumstances, were were being the agent of Christian spread while the Roman Empire was trying to snuff it out. The harder that they were pressing, uh, taking Christians, imprisoning them, taking Christians, throwing them to the lions in the Colosseum, 
watching them respond with a hope that was in Christ and a glory to God, no matter what earthly pain or suffering might befall them, was so contagious that Christianity was spreading in a way that it could not be contained. I I think nobody does this in the scripture better than the Apostle Paul. Uh, no human anyways, maybe maybe you give Jesus a different pass. But if you think about the end of the book of Acts, do yourself a favor this week. Read Acts 21 through Acts 28 and watch how the Apostle Paul gives an account for the hope that is in him consistently throughout the scriptures. In fact, here's what's happened. Uh, up to that point, Paul has become a powerful teacher and maybe the leading influence within the Christian world following the death and resurrection of Christ. On the road to Damascus, he gets knocked off his uh, ride, is blinded, is coming to know Christ, walks into uh, the town, is saved, and begins to proclaim the name of the Lord that he was once persecuting. Out of this, his fellow Jews that were with him persecuting Christians see him as a massive threat. And so from this, years go by where Paul is arguing, persuading, and convincing other Jews that they ought to know Christ, as well as Gentiles who are coming to know the Lord. And the church is exploding and expanding at the work of the Holy Spirit through his life. So much so that the Jews find him an intense threat. He travels back to Jerusalem, and there he is arrested and taken in, and the Jews plot with the Romans, much like they did with Christ, to get rid of Paul, holding him in prison. And so here's what happens. Because of Paul's consistent God-glorifying attitude, as he's brought before Roman governors, Roman kings, Jewish governors, Jewish kings, Roman emperors, that he continues to not argue on his own behalf or a defense for his own value in the sake of his own life, though he could have. Instead, he continues to use his circumstances as a way to give a defense for the hope that is in him. And so they bring him before a ruling and governing authority and drag him up and accuse him of things. And he says, uh, here's, here's why I'm here on trial today and proclaims the gospel to him. And they, they throw him back in prison. And then he comes back again to a better ruling authority or another governor. And, and he does the same thing. And again and again and again, he does it. And again and again and again, the consistent refrain among the leaders who hear him is the same. is hey. I think we could have released this man. We find no reason for guilt in him. And yet his continual appeal is, let me go to someone else that I might proclaim Christ. Because he recognizes this, that earthly suffering, that whatever you're dealing with, if you do what is right, you do what is godly, and it doesn't work out to your benefit or your gain here on earth, you can rejoice because it gives you the ability to give an account for the hope that is in you. That, that suffering consistently allows you to give an account of Christ in your circumstances because you find your hope not in the things of this world, but you find your hope in him. Now, there's, there's a second thing. I think uh, P- Peter's going to really make mention of the fact that suffering, as, as we might suffer for doing what is good or righteous, is a way that we find deeper fellowship in Christ. Listen listen to how he says it in chapter 4. Go with me to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But 
to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Here's here's what I think Peter's saying is that when we suffer for doing what is right, doing what is righteous, we share in the sufferings of Christ and thereby share in the glory of Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 1, that he rejoices in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the, en- among the Gentiles, which is Christ. In you, the hope of glory. He he later goes on to say that for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. When you and I experience pain, experience suffering for doing what is godly on this earth, it allows us to connect to, to share in the experiential suffering of Christ for us. That doesn't mean that there's, uh, when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it doesn't mean there's any incompletion to Christ's afflictions or that you and I have to suffer a certain amount before we're made righteous before God. Remember, our position in Christ has been fully accomplished, that he saved us because God is rich in his mercy and chose us by his mercy and grace, not by anything we do or any experience that we manage in our own nature, but rather what Paul means is that we connect to, we fellowship with the pain and suffering in this world in the way Christ did so that it connects us to his glory, the spirit of glory in God that rests on you. That when we suffer for doing what is righteous, we're sharing in the sufferings with Christ, which may not sound like an appealing thing at first, except that Peter also connects it to the fact that when you share in the suffering with Christ, you share in the glory of Christ, share in the glory of God. Uh, my favorite passages in the scripture that I think I think we as believers just really cheapen and fail to understand is Jesus in John 17, as he is uh, praying on our behalf. So uh, he begins his prayer talking about his connection to the Father and uh, asking the Father to glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. He goes on then to pray for his specific 12 disciples. And then he says, uh, but now I pray not just for them, but for those who will believe on your on their word, right? Uh, that they would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me, that we would be the church connected together. And then he says this, the glory which you have given me I have given to them so that they may be one just as 
we are one. That Jesus' promise to us as we experience pain in this world is that we have a hope because in the shared suffering that we have, we share in the glory of God, that you and I are agents of God's glory, that we get to uh, revel in and experience and think on, dwell on, anticipate the glory of God expressed through us, which ought to give us a great deal of peace. It ought to give us a great deal of hope. It ought to bring us back to the first reason that we would be a people who could give a defense for the hope that is in us. And then, here's, here's the last one. He gives one other reason as we close out chapter 4. He says this, Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God, remember what it means to suffer according to the will of God, is that you're doing what is right, and it's still coming back painful in this world. They shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator, in doing what is right. Here's, here's what godly suffering allows you to do. It allows you to entrust your soul to God. That, that you are no longer dealing with the burden, dealing with the pressure, dealing with the stress and anxiety of feeling like you are ultimately the master of your fate on this earth. You see, I, I'm convinced that in American culture, most people live thinking that they are ultimately a result of their good and bad decisions alone. That ultimately you or I affect our future based on the things that we do and what we choose and what we don't choose. And it leads to one of two things. It either leads to a dramatic amount of pride, as we most understand the word, in thinking that because we have made such great decisions, we now are above and can condescend upon those who have made poor decisions. And so look at me and all of the things that I have done. And God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, that I have made myself righteous. And nothing would lead us away from the life and justification that is in God like pride of man would. Or it leads you into a path of dramatic insecurity and you think, I've just, I've just done so many things wrong that my life has amounted into such a pit that God could never forgive and God could never love me and I could never be a child of his because of my foolish insecurities because of who I am and so either one leads us into these different manifestations of idolatry where we walk not in the trust of the Lord but feeling like we are the captain of our ship that ultimately everything rises and falls upon us and it leads to a great deal of anxiety a great deal of stress a great deal of depression or a great deal of pride either way it walks you away from the Lord and here's Peter's reminder you might make some really horrible decisions in your life. You, you might look at where you're at now and think, boy, I am not where I intended to be. And, and you might even be able to track it back to some choices that you made that you know are unwise. And yet, Peter's recognizing that though you have done evil and though you will do good, that you might experience trial you might suffer even at the hands of doing what is righteous and in this it ought to be a comforting thing because 
you then recognize that you are not in first position in this world. You are not in first position even in your own life that you don't become the master of your own fate, but rather that you and I are meant to be a people who see ourselves as small in light of the bigger picture and entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Here's my prayer for us this morning. I pray that we would entrust our souls to a faithful creator. That, That you would entrust yourself to Christ. And, and maybe maybe you're a believer and you've walked that for years and today is a faithful renewal that I don't seek, I don't find my joy and my pleasure in myself or the consequences of my own decision, but rather among all things, whether I suffer for them or experience joy and bliss for them, that I will greatly rejoice because my soul belongs to the Lord. And maybe, maybe you're watching this morning and you have never even considered that you would place your faith, your trust in something other than yourself. Here's, here's my appeal to you. That Peter's looking and saying, you can try your best. You can try your hardest. But there's two problems. One, you will constantly fail. The, the person we desire to be is never the person we are. You fail and fall short again and again and again. And two, even when you don't, it might result in pain. It might result in suffering. It might result in trial. It might be because God wills it. Because ultimately, you don't stand in first position. You ought to entrust your soul to the faithful creator who in his love for you, sent Christ to suffer for you, to die for you, so that you might have life and peace in him. So what do you do? Well, the Bible says that you would place your faith in Christ, knowing that if anyone, this is verse 16 of chapter 4, suffers as a Christian, He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. That that you and I can love and glorify the Lord when we first trust, place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And so I'm going to pray for you. I pray that uh, you would either today, maybe for the first time, entrust yourself to the faithful creator. Entrust yourself, place your faith in Christ. Maybe you have been a believer for a long time. I pray that you would remember, you would cling to whatever it might be that you're going through, whether it's some earthly suffering right now, or maybe things have have just really been even keel. And I can tell you, if you live long enough, there will be some suffering that is on the horizon. And in it, you would remember that we're meant to be a people who would use that to give an account for the hope that is in us. We're meant to be a people who would use that to remember that our shared suffering with Christ is sharing in the glory of Christ. And we would be a people who would remember that we get to entrust our soul to the Lord in all things. Pray with me. Father, so thankful. It's hard to 
It's hard to say this emotionally, and yet I know it's true. I thank you that we might suffer, that we might deal with pain and trial and difficulty in this world at the hands of doing what is good and godly, that there will be those who will oppose it at all times in our life. And, and in this, we ought to be a people who don't avoid it, and not just a people who seek to get through it, or a people who seek to suppress it or move away from it, but rather that we ought to be a people who greatly rejoice in it, because it allows us an opportunity to give an account for the hope that is in us. It allows us an opportunity to grow in our connection and our fellowship with you because we share in your suffering and glory. And most of all, it allows us to trust and lean not on our own understanding, but to trust and entrust ourselves wholly unto you. Help us with that, Lord. We're so thankful for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, have an awesome Christmas. We hope to see you uh, either live or virtually on Christmas Eve. We love you.